0: Hey, hey, water coolians! Welcome back to a- another episode of Water Cooler Talk. Today on the podcast, we are joined by archaeologist Dr. Michael B.C. Rivera, host of the Ark and Anth podcast, which aims to explore what makes human beings such a unique, diverse, and interesting species. To discuss general human nature, why do we do what we do, or believe what we believe? This episode ends up being a good example of one of our missions of the show in helping one another connect through conversation. When putting together an episode, I try to find bizarre stories that work together, and you know what, sometimes they don't, and it's those stories which don't seem as if they would work together, where finding a guest to bridge that connection becomes vital to, uh, well, productive conversation. Uh, You know, Michael and I, in the episode, we talk about wizards and racism, you know, two things that generally don't come together. And... (laughs) Oh my gosh. Now, as I'm saying that out loud, I now realize that the KKK Grand Wizards, I okay. But regardless, uh, but regardless, my point still stands, you know, it's important to remember, uh, no matter how different we may seem from one another, whether that be how we look, how we sound, what we believe what we stand for, we still have that ability to connect. We're all humans on an earth that's been around for what, 4.5, 4.6 billion years? All our parents, their parents, and their parents, and so on and so forth for hundreds of thousands of years? Guess what? They all did the dirty. (laughs) Face it. We are more alike than many of us care to admit. But for some reason, we continue to create division. We have an opportunity starting today to move humankind forward. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is Water Cooler Talk, episode 46, titled Campfire Stories, with Dr. Michael B.C. Rivera. Enjoy! This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world, and while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not, because they're real. All right, Michael, you ready to jump into our first news story here? Yeah, I am very ready to to jump in. It's a really good one. Let's do it. Hopefully, I have everything recording because sometimes you just forget. <laughs> All right, this is from CNN Travel, August eighth, twenty twenty. This New Zealand man gets paid ten thousand dollars a year to be a city's official wizard. On a sunny autumn afternoon, two wizards in long black robes and pointed hats sat down for coffee in the city of Christchurch, New Zealand. It wasn't Halloween. There was no costume party to attend. Instead, as they sat and sipped their daily coffee, they discussed official wizard business. You see, in the city of Christchurch, seeing a wizard isn't completely out of the ordinary. For decades, the city has had an official wizard, Brackenberry Chanel, Brackenberry who is known as the wizard, settled in New Zealand in the 1970s. Over the years, he became a well-known fixture at the front of the city's cathedral in which he would spend his time pontificating on life theories, which, as mentioned, earned him $10,400 a year from the city council for his acts of wizarding. As a young man, the wizard spent his youth journeying and learning the ins and outs of sociology and psychology before starting what he called a fun revolution, which aimed to bring love, logic, and levity to the world. After losing a position at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia, the wizard created his own position at the university as their official wizard. But this job wasn't a job of casting spells and impersonating Gandalf. The wizard saw his role in the position as being kind of a provocateur, someone who brings a sense of fun to the world, but also criticizes the system. A showman who doesn't mind making a fool of himself. However, the world, his family, and especially his first wife, didn't share his zest for life. So after bouncing around universities, the wizard moved to Christchurch, New Zealand in 1974. When the wizard arrived at Christchurch, he saw the city as a romantic dream and set his sights on convincing the public, but more importantly the city council, that the city was in need of a wizard. As his profile among the city grew, he got more official recognition, including receiving the Queen's Service Medal, one of the highest honors in New Zealand, and became a mainstay. Now age 87, the wizard spends less time in the public eye and is set to train a successor, 38-year-old Ari Freeman, to take his mantle as the official wizard of Christchurch. But times are changing for the wizard. As the world around him moves forward, he stays passionate to his beliefs including his disdain for the census, vegetarianism, climate change, evil music, and the resistance to the idea of a female becoming a wizard. And there is, perhaps, little need for a public figure whose views are increasingly out of step with those in the community. As a successor to the wizard, Ari Freeman is aware that he can't be a wizard without the support of the community. To him, being a wizard is a way to empower people who are lost or depressed and shake them out of the bounds of what is expected. He states, It takes someone to do something unusual to poke their heads in to create a zeitgeist change. I want the wizard phenomenon to continue, and I will totally fulfill that role. So, Michael, before before we get too much into it, I'm going to steal a question from our friends over at Going Ghost Podcast. But where do you stand on the supernatural? And, you know, if you believe it, mm-hmm. have you had any experiences? Oh, wow.
1: Well, <sighs> I, I find this story really interesting, and also, you know, as soon as I saw photos of him, I did think about Gandalf. But of course, <laughs> the news story says that he's been doing it since the seventies. I, uh, I mean, my myself, um, I have had very little um, supernatural experiences. I would say that maybe there was something that happened when I was in high school, where um, I went to a really old school here in Hong Kong, where I'm from and where I grew up. Uh, the school was a, you know, a hundred and hundred and something years old. So 110 years old around. So obviously it had survived um, a lot of like wars and a lot of just a lot of history in the city. And I know that around World War II time, the Japanese occupied Hong Kong around the 1940s. And for a number of years, the school was actually converted into like a hospital. There would be, you know, nurses and doctors like treating Treating patients there, mm-hmm, yeah. More time. So then there was one one day. I think there was like a IT class, you know, computer class, and I had to uh, go up to the IT room. I remember like going there. I got there first before.
0: This was in the hospital. This was in
1: the school, <laughs> but for the school. Yes. Okay. It was as a hospital. Was used 40s, ho- got it. And the, the reason it made me think about this history was because I, I stepped into the computer room. I was the first one there. My classmates hadn't arrived yet. And I remember uh, looking, looking like into the room, trying to figure out where I would sit. I swear I saw like this sort of like faint, grayish, silverish, bluish kind of figure of like a of a young girl who was sitting behind one of the uh, computers. I, I ran out of the, <laughs> just ran out, and I was like, oh my god! Like I had to tell my classmates, you won't believe what I just saw, and I was so I was so scared. Uh, a really weird thing was also like, you know, with my classmates now, you know, I like slowly like peeked at like what was on the computer uh, where she was sitting. This little girl, if, if she was indeed there, had like, like slammed the keyboard no words or anything, but just like, you know, just slamming the keyboard a couple of times. And I was like, yeah, in the Mm -hmm. the login, like under username, where you could log into the computer, just like someone had slammed the keyboard, and I think it was her. (laughs) (laughs) And then I went, of course, I'm so like, you know, I'm now a scientist. And I think ever since I was young, I had this, this mind for like, I, I want to know what is going on. I want the facts. So I went to go look in the library at like the history of the school. Um, apparently like that room in particular was like an infirmary where physicians would treat young children in particular. Oh,
0: okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: didn't want to know that to be honest.
0: <laughs> no, that, that's one of those things where, I mean, as you say, you're a scientist, so you're trying to put together like the scientific method to see if, if maybe I was just seeing something or if it actually happened. And then all these facts kind of line up and you're like, oh crap. Yeah.
1: I mean, that's the only one I can really remember. And it, and it fit with the, within the story of like the school that I went to. I don't really remember any anything uh, other
0: than that. But yeah, I I've, I've never had a ghost situation. I've never seen a ghost. I don't know. I'm somebody I'm not I'm not a huge believer in ghosts. Other people, you know, you've had obviously that experience, you know, why are we not seeing ghosts just walking around normally? Why does it always have to be in haunted buildings? Who knows? I don't know. But I do believe in, you know, like energies mm-hmm. and stuff of that nature and just obviously the energy fields of the earth and what we're creating and those providing a sense of, I don't know, maybe a different plane of existence. Who knows? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a scientist. I just podcast <laughs> in the basement. I,
1: um, that just reminded me of several experiences that I've had um, in my job as well. So um, I, I'm an archaeologist and, you know, I, I study human remains. I study bones and teeth. You know, I have access to skeletons in, in labs and museums, universities around the world. I don't know if you can imagine this, but you know, for the, for the scientific investigations that we have to do I'm trying to understand like what what makes us human and I have to measure bones I have to take observations of of skeletons and what you do is you know typically typically these things are like in in a basement or like in, in a in a room tucked away I don't know how many times you've ever been in a room with tens of thousands of skeletons it's
0: it's not not (laughs) happening
1: for me i think that i have studied over four thousand or five thousand skeletons now in my career you know when you're when you're working late and it's it's 7 p.m um you're you're in the basement your your desk lamp is the only lamp illuminating the room and behind you it's just rows and rows of boxes and each of them inside if you imagine are the remains of of people especially when it gets late um (laughs) And you're tired. Like you can really, you feel exactly as you say. There's there's some energy there, and it hits different because sometimes also you know that these remains were, you know, maybe the maybe people that were um, caught up in, in a battle who didn't, you know, perish in, in the nicest of ways. Um, some of them are the elderly. Some of them are children and some of them are, um, you can just tell that they maybe suffered during their life because there are signs of disease that show up on the bones. It can be really impactful just doing my line of work.
0: Well, you study humans, you, you study why humans do what humans do. Like, why why do we have those feelings? Why do these bones give off these feelings to, you know, you in particular? Mm. You know, why do we enjoy stories of a wizard or stories of magic, whimsy? Why, why What's the reason for that?
1: That's a really big question. You know, like, what, why is it that we believe? Why, why is it that we have faith? Or why is it that we, you know, why do, why do humans, humans have this capacity for, like, imagining ideas and beings beyond here and now, beyond what you can feel and touch, beyond what you can see? Uh, I think that a good starting point is then to to think about whether that's unique amongst the animal kingdom, mm-hmm. you know, humans, you know, we like to think that we're very special. And we are, we are, and we can talk <laughs> yeah. about that after this. But just I, w- I just wanted to note that, you know, even when you look at other um, primate species, so the apes and the monkeys that are the most related to us, and even other mammals, you know, anybody who's ever had a dog or a cat, we know that animals and mammals in particular are so good at expressing themselves and having this sort of capacity to know, Um, you know, a dog knows, Oh, that's, that's the postman. And then I'm good. I'm so excited for the postman. I'm going to wag my tail. I'm going to jump, but they don't know. They don't know what's behind the door before the postman open, open the door for the postman. It's very interesting that so many animals have this capacity for imagining and predicting even though it makes no sense. You know, in theory, you shouldn't be able to tell things, but you have memory and you have um, meaning that is imbued in like your experience. And then you, you kind of like extrapolate that and you kind of mm-hmm. you know, think about things that you can't see, but we think about it nonetheless.
0: Well, yeah, and I think it, it's one of those things where, I mean, kind of going into religion a bit, like it's to somewhat answer questions that we don't have the answers to mm-hmm. generally as humans. We're very fearful of not knowing something. Mm -hmm. We create something to fill that void.
1: That's a really like um, a very big hypothesis that um, a lot of scientists, a lot of theologians and philosophers, they do put forward this hypothesis that perhaps it is a way of explaining things that we we cannot explain. When we go back around maybe like 50,000 years ago, that was the first time that we see Homo sapiens actually like putting art like on the cave walls and actually using, you know, representations, um, drawings and even little like symbols sometimes. And so they're using language and they're using art as a way of saying what they mean, expressing themselves, making sense of the world around them. It's not too hard to imagine that then they would use the same kind of language and art to explain things that cannot be explained, such as natural disasters. How does nature work? Where did nature come from? Um, the solar system, like things that they they didn't have the scientific tools then to explain.
0: Well, imagine as humans start to move from their roots of hunter-gatherers to cultivators and agriculturals. Mm -hmm. Agriculturals? I don't even know if that's a good (laughs) Agriculturalists, farmers, yeah. Agriculturists, farmers. You start, and the development of speech, you start sharing stories around the campfire, and you start trying to entertain each other because... I feel like even all the way back to the beginning of humans, humans were trying to entertain each other. Mm-hmm. And you start talking about these stories and you start making up stories. Humans love to lie. You know, these stories become bigger and bigger. And then you go from hunter gatherers to farmers where a lot more people are together. Mm-hmm. And these stories of, you know, I don't know if you had the story growing up in Hong Kong, where I'm from in Minnesota, we had the story about like the hook, the, the man with the hook. I have no idea what you're talking Ugh, about. It's been so long. <laughs> Two teenagers are making out in a car in the woods, right? Mm-hmm. And and they keep hearing all these brussels and moves and just strange sounds in the woods. So the guy, because the guy always has to go out and look, he goes out and looks and he disappears. And the woman starts freaking out and she's like, oh, what's, what's going on? So she gets out of the car. She starts looking around the car. She hears these noises and then she disappears. I, I may not be saying this completely right. But anyway, somebody comes the next day to check and there's like a, a hook, mm. like they lost a hand and now they have a hook for a hand on the door of the car. So- then you had this, you know, scary story of the hook man that would come and kill you if you made out with your girlfriend or you know <laughs> significant other in the woods. Right. So I imagine stories like that. Once people started congregating together, spread and they just became bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And you get stories of ghost tales and the supernatural. And now we're at a place where we are entertained by those stories.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think it's really interesting to think about that time that that you mentioned about when we were hunter-gatherers, you know, when we would first congregate in smaller groups around campfires. You know, that is a really interesting question because, you know, we have evidence where we first created fire maybe around 200,000 or 500,000 years ago. That was the first time that we actually find evidence of like charcoal, so burnt wood, um, the remains of burnt wood around campsites, around archaeological sites. You know, it's a source of light it's a source of warmth. It's a source of like uh, food as well. If you know, we, we're going to uh, heighten the quality of our food just by cooking it. Sometimes mm-hmm. it would be a place where people congregate, as you say. Are humans just going to sit there and just you know stare blankly into the fire? Maybe sometimes, for <laughs> sure. Um, but they would also probably talk to each other. It's so interesting how like the social, just the the the, the aspect of using fire and food, they they link up together because if you actually are are eating better food and eating a a greater variety of food, it probably is good for your body. It's probably good for your mind as well. There's evidence of that maybe our brains grew bigger around that time period, thanks to the food that we were eating. But not just that, there were certain uh, parts of our brain that were developing even more. They were developing, um, you know, humans around that time also involved bigger frontal lobes, so the front of your brain. And those parts of the brain are really important for Memory, for emotion, for sociability, um, and also the cerebellum as well, further back into your brain, which are responsible for like sort of your, your motor skills, like using your hands to, to do stuff and imitating other people. So basically, like learning how other people are making stone tools and stuff like that. The food makes our brains more uh, or bigger, and then the, the neurons connect, connecting even in, in new ways. And then that makes humans better successful at like getting
0: food. Yeah, that's I mean, yeah, such a great point. As food has developed, so has our conversations. Now we're at a point where we don't have to spend 18 hours a day farming for our food. We can go to, you know, the supermarket, get dinner, invite friends over and pre-corona times i don't know how it's going in hong kong but in the us not going well but anyways now we're not spending 18 hours or maybe spending 30 minutes yes. you know picking up food and our cooking food and we have all this extra time to actually sit around and have conversations mm-hmm. because otherwise we would all go bored and go crazy
1: yeah my point was just that um you know when you when you have this uh you have more brain connections like neural connections like that developed from through evolution, um, that would then create the capacity to then like imagine things that um, you can't see with the naked eye, um, and, and, and also share stories. Mm-hmm. Yes, you write that around 10 or 15,000 years ago, a, li- a lot more recently, recent to me, <laughs> um, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> relatively <laughs> 15,000 years ago is very recent to, to me in terms of human evolution. And um, when we went into agriculture, you're right that we started to think about um, societies as being a lot bigger through that you actually start to then have different political systems different social systems different economic systems and so I'd love to ask you what you think about this but have you ever thought about economics or like you know capitalism is also something that you have to believe in in order for it to work
0: I think you have to believe in a system as you know societies grew, People had to believe in some uniform type system to help each other because when you start getting into 10,000, 100,000, a million people in a city, that's a lot of people that need to be, I think, controlled is the wrong word, but somehow pointed in the right direction. And to do so, there needs to be a common belief. I think utopias can never exist because everyone has their own beliefs. But I think there needs to be a common belief, whether that be believing in capitalism or believing in socialism or communism, Mm -hmm. whatever that may be, I think there does need to be some sort of common belief to move the growth of that city or town or state or country forward. Yeah, I I would agree
1: with you in that um, it is something that people have to buy into. I was watching on Netflix i was watching the explained is a great like documentary series yes i love it <laughs> and there was one like on the stock market one about cryptocurrency like it's so mind blowing that it's it's simply that some people had had an idea to you know play with currency or play with the economics um in a certain way and somehow some way like you know a few people got others to buy into something such as the stock market or such as Bitcoin. And people buy into it because others are buying into it. And then everybody, the whole world buys into it. And that to me is so fascinating because in essence, you know, money <laughs> or cryptocurrency or, or any- Doesn't exist really. It doesn't exist really. It's just, oh, we believe that this is the value of, a, of an item.
0: We all agreed that we would say, hey- We all agree with the with the value
1: set by, by banks and by- corporations. But in the olden days, you know, I would, I would see you, I see that you grow potatoes, I grow onions, let's trade a potato for an onion, you know, that that was what our our border and trade system used to be like, and also in terms of like how we organize our societies. You know, we have things like the United Nations. You know, governments that that handle the lives of millions of people at a time. A lot along, not that long ago, ten thousand years ago, maybe our groups weren't really that big. Um, at the very most, it'd be like a couple thousand or tens of thousands, and we would be like, okay, that's probably the limit of what we could control or regulate or moderate so this is our kingdom or this is our uh chiefdom our our band and you know sometimes we'll send delegates of our tribe to to trade with others or to negotiate like land boundaries but we're not going to we're not going to like try and you know, dominate the world, basically. (laughs) Yeah.
0: No, that was an excellent question. I, this is, this is why I love doing the show because we started talking about wizards and now we're talking about how money is fake. Yes. I love it. (laughs) I would like to welcome to the show. Dr. Michael BC Rivera, Michael hosts the arc and anth podcast, which aims to explore what makes human beings such a unique, diverse, and interesting species through conversations with experts in the field of archeology span and anthropology. When not in the middle of a move to Hong Kong, the podcast releases new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Michael, welcome to Water Cooler Talk.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much for welcoming me. I finished I finished my move to Hong Kong, I think. I don't know if you've ever moved from the Netherlands or the UK to Hong Kong. <laughs> it's like 9,000.
0: As, <laughs> as with you mentioning, have I worked with bones before? I am They're not. Right. It's quite a
1: move. I think everything is set up. I think all the furniture is here, and I think... I think I'm like ready to be at work, which is why like we're we're recording right now and not like a week ago. Yeah,
0: I had contacted you in like the middle of your move. Yeah, (laughs) we're here now. Uh, You yourself, as you mentioned, are an archaeologist. Why is it important to start a podcast and have these conversations with others in your field? I would imagine when the common everyday citizen thinks of these fields, it's Laura Croft, it's Indiana Jones. It's, you know, you mentioned how Bones, the show Bones was influential in doing what you do. And I mean, (laughs) I love Indiana Jones, but he was not the safest with those uh, ancient artifacts. No,
1: and uh, a lot of people in my field, not me, I was inspired by bones, as you said, but a lot of people, other, you know, my friends and colleagues, they they love Indiana Jones. They just love the fun of it. And at the end of the day, it inspired them to to, to enter the field. I think that archaeology is like a really important field because, you know, sometimes when I was, uh, you know, during doing my undergraduate degree, my bachelor's, I would come back home to Hong Kong and I would sit at the family dinner table and my family didn't understand what I was doing. They didn't get it. (laughs) They don't understand why I would care about stuff that Uh happened 500 or 50,000 years ago. You know, and I wasn't a doctor. I wasn't an astronaut trying to figure out how we could live in space one day. I wasn't doing something quote unquote, important. Mm-hmm. And then we start to, you know, later on in dinner, then they would ask me like, what I was doing? Like, what actually are you learning? I would tell them like a little bit about it. And then they suddenly had questions. They were like, Oh, really? That's what you do? When was the first human ever like around Hong Kong? And I was able to tell them, well, easy, like that 7000 years ago, they were the first like fishers, fisher, fishermen and fisherwomen who would live in like small societies. And I was able to tell them a story. I could explain to them, like, why is it that genetically, you know, a lot of us Asian people, we have like black hair. Uh, Why is it that we sweat? Is that evolutionary? Like all kinds of different questions. And I was able to tell them that story. The aim of my podcast is to try and like incite more of that interest. Even though it's not obvious, I think all of us want answers to questions. Sometimes questions that we don't know that we want the answers to it <laughs> until you hear someone <laughs> talk about it yeah and so like yeah that's why i was so excited to to talk about this story for example about why we believe there's a lot of like interesting evolutionary uh things that we can say about it but yeah that's what i was thinking about
0: uh listeners if you'd like to connect with dr rivera and learn more about his work you can do so by following him on twitter at rivera michael and on instagram at dr michael rivera you can also support his show, the ARC and the ANTH podcast, by following on Twitter and Instagram at ARC and ANTH pod. Once again, at ARC and ANTH pod. And as always, those links will be included in the description of this episode and on our website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. Once again, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. Before we move on, myself and Water Cooler Talk are on a mission to help give back to different parts of the community and those who have helped build our show to where it stands today. For each episode, the guests will bring with them a charity of their choice to represent. On the day of the episode going live, Water Cooler Talk will give a donation to that charity in honor of the guest, as well as a global platform to spread a message of love, hope, and togetherness. And we hope you listening to this episode can join in and to help spread the message of the guests' chosen charity to your own personal audience. Michael, your charity of choice for today's episode is the TAIBU Community Health Center in Ontario, Canada. Do you mind explaining a bit more about what they do and the impact they have in the community? Yeah,
1: sure. Um, so for the past couple of years, and especially in light of uh, recent events um, in the last three months in the Black Lives Matter movement, I've been very keen, even on my podcast, to, you know, um, spread awareness about like the struggles and some of the issues and concerns that, you know, members of the community who are, who are Black, what what they're going through in terms of, you know, basically hundreds of years of um, oppression and and injustice. And so um, the charity that I mentioned does is try and provide support for Black and Indigenous peoples in Ontario in all sorts of ways. And so that's what the money would go towards.
0: Well, I appreciate you sharing them. And it's a perfect segue into our final story of the day. Mm, Yes. This is from The Guardian, February 3rd, 2020. Why liberal white women pay a lot of money to learn over dinner how they're racist. Freshly made pasta is drying on the wooden banisters lining the hall of a beautiful home in Denver, Colorado. Fox-hunting photos decorate the walls in a room full of books. A fire? It's burning. And downstairs, a group of liberal white women have gathered around a long wooden table to admit just how racist they are. Welcome to Race to Dinner. Race to Dinner, a frank discussion led by co-founders Regina Jackson and Syrah Rowe, entails a white woman to volunteer to host a $2,500 dinner in her home for seven other white women, often strangers or acquaintances, who challenge themselves to accept their racism. Rowe states, If you did this in a conference room, they'd leave. But wealthy white women have been taught never to leave the dinner table. Roe and Jackson believe white, liberal women are the most receptive audience because they are open to change. They don't bother with the 53% of white women who voted for Trump in 2016. White men, they feel, are similarly a lost cause. Jackson states, White men are never going to change anything. If they were, They would have done it by now. White women are uniquely placed to challenge racism because of their proximity to power and wealth. If they don't hold these positions themselves, the white men in power are often their family, friends, and partners. The genesis of race to dinner wasn't straightforward. In the beginning, the dinner party tone was much more argumentative. Women at the dinners were always crying. Some of the dinners got... Much, much more out of hand. Attendees have tried to place hands on Jackson and Rowe, And racial slurs have been thrown around. I, I'm sure some of you have uh, experienced some uncomfortable Thanksgiving dinners. But in recent months, the model changed. They didn't just want to have women rely on them to shout at them for being racist and then go home. They began to expect more from them. They asked women to speak up own their racism. The women who sign up for these dinners are not what most would see as racist. They are well-read, well-meaning, mostly Democrats. Some have adopted black children. Many have partners who are people of color. Some have been doing work towards inclusivity and diversity for decades. But they acknowledge that they also have unchecked biases. They are there because, as pointed out by one of the hosts, Jess Campbell Swanson, they know they are part of the problem and want to be part of the solution. So, getting a chance to read through the story mm-hmm. I think what these two women are doing there's a lot there's a lot of good being done by having these dinners having these conversations it's I mean it's why I do this show it's to have these conversations and make it more normalized mm-hmm. but I think one thing that's being missed is that there's no real clear definition and I think this is common across a lot of other platforms as well but there's no clear definition of what it means to be, Racist. It's become this prevalent problem in the fight for equality. These are white women who, as they say, are not racist. They're presumably, presumably, Mm -hmm. they're presumably not hateful towards other races, but they're being called racist. So I think as an outsider, you look upon this type of story and it comes across confusing. And maybe this is just how I see it, but there needs to be a better definition of racism. There needs to be a clear message. Forward, And I feel like there isn't one. And when I say that, I feel like racism can be broken down into two roads. And these two roads do intertwine. Um, But you have systemic racism, Mm -hmm. which a lot of people have been hearing a lot about the past six, seven months. And that's, you know, to talk about Explained, um, the series Explained on Netflix, Mm -hmm. when Abraham Lincoln signed into law to free slaves, he had a plan to give those freed black slaves ample amounts of land in the South. Well, (laughs) I mean, he went to a theater and I mean, he didn't come back from that He did actually come back from that theater. He died a few days later. (laughs) But anyways, Johnson took over and Johnson said, no, fuck that. I'm changing it up. And systemic racism, example of that is that these free black slaves could not build wealth through property where white Americans could. So now we're in a place where, you know, we talk about redlining, we talk about gerrymandering, we talk about bad inner city schools, all because of what happened all those years ago. Mm -hmm. And then we have you know, what I see as the other road of hatred racism. This is the KKK, this is, you know, just just hatred towards another person because of the way they look, because of the color of their skin. So I think, you know, at least speaking to what I know from an American background, when you see articles mention how racism is still prevalent in America, and then somebody looks out their door and they don't see the KKK marching down the street, they're hesitant. You know, I had I had a situation now a while back is yes, with Cecil the lion, the the famous lion that got shot, lured out of its uh, reserve and shot. They were being studied by Oxford, mm-hmm. and I remember there was so much passion. People that loved animals and even people that didn't love animals, they realized that what had happened was wrong. What that man did, what that dentist did was an act of poaching. And there was this massive confusion on him being this trophy hunter and, and then can hunting got thrown into the mix. And now you have three different iterations of the idea of shooting an animal. But all this passion was just not directed where it needed to be. Uh, all that passion doesn't need to go in the exact same direction, but it needs to move forward. Mm-hmm. All that passion was going in so many different directions. Years later, we still have those issues. Mm-hmm. Years later, we still have issues like Jacob Blake. I mean, regardless of what who you are as a person, regardless of what you do as a person, there's no reason for you to be shot in the back, what, seven, eight times by a police officer. And so I want to reiterate, I think having these conversations are positive and good, there just in general needs to be a better definition mm-hmm. of what's being fought for.
1: Yeah. Very like big, big topics to um, dissect. I, I do agree that like there probably isn't a, a consistent definition of, of racism and what constitutes racist behavior, as you say. Mm-hmm. And so, in that, I think that people do go to authority to tell them and to educate them what that is and a lot of the time um, people will go to their teachers they will go to maybe more senior members of their family their parents maybe if you're if you're a kids or your teenager maybe you might read an article you know you, you rely on journalists you rely on academics and writers to tell you what exactly is is um, causing the issue here how can we make it better there is a great diversity of like what people might say is racist behavior mm-hmm. this is this is uh i i, I can't really like separate of uh, my perspective that is like from the professional side and from the personal side from my point of view um when i was getting trained in anthropology and archaeology they were they were part of the same education you know there was part of the same experience for me um i grew up in hong kong i'm a filipino chinese person and I went to the UK to get all of my degrees, my, my bachelor's, my master's, and then my PhD eventually, you know, I fully I, I am in this field, and I fully intend to stay in my in my field for 50 years. <laughs> like, I, I'm going to stay. Yeah, nothing anybody can do is going to um, make me want to leave. <laughs> I, I decided that when I was, you know, 13 or 14, ever since I, um, you know, washed bones, as we talked about earlier. The problem was that, you know, I learned throughout my years that my field is actually incredibly um, exclusive and you have to sort of be from a certain demographic of people. You have to have a certain background if you want the greatest chances of success. It doesn't mean that people can't work hard and kind of like break through those um, elitist barriers, Mm -hmm. but they exist nonetheless. And it's a it's a great, great challenge that many have to face if they are, especially if they are a person of color. If they are Black or if they're Indigenous, um, especially if you're in Canada or you're in the United States um, and you're Métis or Inuit or First Nations or Indigenous, it is so hard to to make it into the higher levels of, like, academics.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: My experience of that was, uh, like we've already said, like, I, I'm a scientist, so I want to make sense of, like, why? why? Why is it that just the color of my skin or the fact that I am... Uh, an immigrant who, is, who has come to the UK to try and find work, why is it that there is there are systems in place that make it a lot harder for me to um, mm-hmm. succeed? The the first thing that I, I really learned is that race or racism is not really about your skin color. It isn't anything to do with like your biology. It isn't anything to do with what you inherently have or don't have in your, like, in your physical body. Because I think that we've actually seen uh, in in the last three months, for example, that when the Black Lives Matter uh, movements and the protests are happening, it doesn't matter whether you protesting are Pacific Islander or Latinx or Asian or Black or even if you're white. The police will try and reprimand you, no matter what happens. Racism it doesn't it doesn't matter. It, it actually will it could have negative effects on almost anybody in society as long as. Um, What you're doing is kind of going against, you know, the the deep rooted racism that is sort of systemic and embedded in American society. And also across the world in different countries, there are different racial, religious, um, ethnic relationships between different groups of people again. But that's the principle.
0: No, I think that's a very good point because when we talk about race and racism, it's not something that is in our genetics, it's something that's taught. You know, we talk about why. One person's white, one person's black, one person's this, that, or another. It's merely based on where their ancestors were from. You know, if you happen to have pale skin, it's because your ancestors are farther away from the equator. Mm -hmm. And you probably had a smaller nose because to keep out the cold wind and stuff of that nature. And your face was structured for winters where... If you were closer to the equator, you're going to have darker skin, the darker pigmentation, so you don't get sunburn that kills you. And you're probably going to have a different shape nose so you can get better air. Yeah. And all these things, I mean, no one chooses who they are. Mm-hmm. It's just you're born one day and you just happen to be born to this parent or that parent. But it, it's become so interesting that we're defined by these characteristics that have been chosen or that were not, I guess, our ancestors didn't choose them either. They just happened to be in that situation. But creating these this hatred towards another person because of where their ancestors grew up thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands year ago. And we're not basing it on character. Yeah, And I think that's what we need to move forward on is these are just stupid reasons to To, to separate them. These Yeah, yeah, stupid reasons to separate people. I've talked about this before, like the working class used to be tan. The hierarchy and all that looked down upon them because, well, guess what? That meant they worked outside. They couldn't afford the luxury of staying inside all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think those ideas have remanated throughout human history and they keep passing on and passing on and passing on. And it's like, well, we get to a point where, oh, you look a little different than me. Well, fuck you. And it's just, it's become so ridiculous that yeah. these small moments are completely changing humans and dividing humans. The
1: ideas that you mentioned, like they, they have a really long history. You know, if you go back to the ancient Egyptians, for example, <clears throat> there is this is this great tome called the, the Book of the Dead. And um, in it are like these depictions of different people. Apparently, like in the underworld, um, people need to be divided. <laughs> and they would link up the appearance of people. They thought that there were four kinds of people based off of um, not just skin color, but also their behavior. Mm-hmm. There are similar kind of descriptions also like in the Bible. The ancient Greeks would would classify people like this. And even the earliest uh, scientists in my field, um, working around the 1800s, again, would look at skulls and be like, oh, this skull shape means certain things about their biology, but also linking it to character again. So this is the superior skull shape and the superior skin color. And all of these other ones are, they're they're either, they're just inferior in a hierarchy or they're, they're deviations of the ideal skull shape. Mm-hmm. We can all suppose like, oh, what would the ideal skull shape B? Well, oh, apparently it is white people. You know, white people have the ideal skull shape. And you're right that we need to separate all of these links in the past that were made between a person's appearance and their character. All of it was just to justify some really horrible things in the past. Genocides, eugenics movements that aim to purify populations of people, um, the transatlantic slave trade. All of those were justified by, by, by politicians and by scientists even, who are embedded in that social political context. They wanted to justify the horrible things they were doing. Well, if we call them inferior and we call ourselves the most important, that way is how we're gonna manage that.
0: Well, yeah, I think the best example is the Nazis and what they did in Germany, and you look at mm-hmm. what the perfect Aryan race was, guess what, Hitler did not look like what he wanted his people to look like. So you kind of like you get that power dynamic, people in power, they can look at someone and say, I think I'm better than you. Mm-hmm. And they're going to find the smallest of reasons to say that.
1: Yeah, if you are a person of color, if you're Jewish, if you're if you're queer, if you're if you have a disability, like it's, it's so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> it's just making up stuff to justify like what they want. Yeah.
0: I have this belief that we're all somewhat have racist tendencies or not, not racist tendencies, but preferential tendencies. Mm-hmm. I've mentioned if you're going up in a white community, everyone you hang out with is, you know, white If you go to the store, there's a white cashier, white people stocking the shelves. If you go home, you watch white TV. Mm -hmm. You're going to have a preferential treatment of white, of a white person compared to someone else. Does that mean you're a horrible person? Not necessarily. I think if you act upon those in a way of hatred, I think that does make you a horrible person. Mm-hmm. But there's also these communities built – I think – I just read about sunrise or sundown communities the other day where it would literally be – it's an all-white community and they call it a sundown community because back in the day, they used to tell black people, you better get out by sundown or bad things are going to happen to you. Mm-hmm. And so these people are stuck in this community surrounded by white people and that hate – or not I – mean, I mean, I guess it is hate in these sundown communities, but just that preference, that preferential treatment towards, say, a white person, somebody that looks very similar to you, Mm -hmm. just grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. And they never have that chance to be more diverse. Find friends of different races, different sexes, different religions, different whatever it may be, and expand your way of thinking. And when you shut yourself down and say, I'm just going to, you know, life is good. What I'm doing, I'm not going to... Think about anyone else. You get these situations where it's tough to move forward in the conversation.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, when I was being trained and I was going through some pretty horrible experiences myself, like even in the even in the academic setting, I was I was called slurs too. they just fundamentally lacked an understanding of their own biases towards people who are different from them. Funnily, I think that it actually relates to what we talked about in the first half with the first story about what we believe. We see it every single day that there are some humans who believe that you can actually exploit other people's capacity to believe for benefit to, to actually have some very prejudiced, like have prejudice spread, and they will, um, you know, put out some very gendered or ableist or um, homophobic or racial ideas out into the universe and try and get people on their side and you're basically weaponizing the human capacity to believe in stuff and and that's not good you know it has really like horrible uh, consequences when you do that we have so many lessons from history but i i even especially like in 2020 that that lesson is being taught to us every single day also uh, anthropologists in my field and me included in that it's not really only about finding out why we believe and how we evolve to have the capacity i think also all of us need to think about what is it that we want to believe for the sake of humanity? I think that's a really like interesting question. And and that's probably like what, what the future is is going to be determined. Like that's how the future of our species is going to be determined.
0: Do you think dinners like what these two women are putting on can help work towards that future or at least have the potential? The best
1: part of these dinners, so I, I also believe that you know there it requires education of people, like people just need to, to listen and, and be aware of what's going on. What is the experience of others? I think we do need to have these discussions and, and that needs to be welcomed and that mm-hmm. needs to be celebrated. But I also think we need to be careful about when people are educating, especially uh, women of color and black women, it's so important to also think about the toll that it takes on them and what is the proper way to compensate that from that. A very good I point. wish that I could just live on other people's interest and passion. I, I need to eat. And I, I came into this business. You <laughs> need to
0: pay some bills. Yeah. I have a
1: lot of, like, I've paid a lot of money for, like, all my education up to this point. And I'm sorry that it, it's so, it's so, it's it's like a little bit crude or whatever, but that's the reality of it. <laughs>
0: it, is, it is. Life costs money. <laughs> it is. These are very tough conversations. There's There's probably a good reason why they decided to exclude half of women in America. This is a tough conversation for people who are somewhat on board, mm-hmm. but to go against people that are probably not on board whatsoever. They may have like a toe on board, but it is a very, very tough conversation. I mean, there needs to be mm-hmm. some return for having these conversations. As much as you want to say the return should be changing people's lives for the better. Like you said, it doesn't yeah, pay it, the it, bills.
1: It can build, but it can, you know, if if the right institutions and the right um, orga- organizations set it up the right way. Yes, yes. It's possible. Yes, thank you. Yeah, And it all it, all it takes is a, you know, People to be aware of that and then actually create the conditions where that kind of work will be rewarded. And I do agree with you. Like I also, I also thought a lot about that other 53%, but it's those two scholars who are hosting these dinners. It is, you know, you have to choose what you're going to do with your time. Um, and this is the, this is the avenue through which they think that they can best put their efforts and they're probably right. They, they know their own skill set and what they want to do with their own uh, careers, but there certainly are. Well, and based on, go ahead.
0: Oh, uh, based on like what I've, I've done, you know, a little bit of research on this dinner to um uh, race to dinner. I did a little bit of research on them and they're very aggressive in their approach. I'm someone who I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that. Mm-hmm. I think there's a way to find connection and build from there. But when you lead with, you know, they talked about fights happening and racial slurs getting thrown around at these dinners. I mean, that's not the type of dinner I would put forth, but they're doing what they're doing. And if it's working for them, it's working for them. Right. As, as I kind of talked about in the beginning, I think that's one thing that I would be like, I would do this differently it's fine that you're doing this. I want you, you know, it's fine that you're doing this. And if it's working, it's working. And the people signed up for it too. Like
1: people signed up for that too.
0: People are signing up for this. People are, you know, I think she, uh, one of the ladies shared a story about how a woman was like, I want to do it again, but I would do it differently. I think Mm -hmm. I would just work from a place of, hey, we need to find some common ground and build from there and hear out why these people, see, I would be the person, I would be more interested in having conversations with the 53% of women who voted for Trump. That's where I feel like I would be most comfortable because I would be like, why? Mm -hmm. Why do you believe what you believe? And let's figure out a way to find some connection between the two of us and move from there.
1: They're, they're also like really prominent on Twitter. And um, yes, yes. Talks all over the country, like, so they, 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 I think that there, there needs to be different kinds of uh, approaches to, to this, there are people who are talking to those that, that 53% to 100%. Mm-hmm. There is great work being done there on the on the aggression thing. Okay, so I, I'm going to like describe a scenario which is something that happened to me like hundreds of times. <laughs> um, when I started my PhD, I was 23. Mm-hmm. Where I did my PhD was at the University of Cambridge. So if you know anything about that, it's an 800-year-old university that that is the world, all over the world will, will say that it's one of the best. You know, it's like the Harvard and yes. the Yale and the Princeton and the Oxford. So Cambridge is a very prestigious place. And I went to uh, dinners. So they actually host a lot of like fancy dinners that we could all sign up to as PhD uh, candidates. You know, on the surface level, it's very nice. There's great food, they they serve you really well, like the waiting staff is excellent. And um, there's plenty of drink and it's, (laughs) you know, it's fun. And you get to meet lots of people from around the world and all of you are like as nerdy as the next one, like. You all talk about, like, you know, someone is a PhD in history, a PhD in economics, PhD in archaeology, PhD in chemistry. You just nerd out for, like, three or four hours. I think that after, you know, dozens of these dinners, time and time and again, I started to realize that there was a part of me that had actually been, like, suppressed. There were parts of, like, my Hong Konger background that I just couldn't bring out anymore. It's so similar. Like, when I read this story about liberal white women... Um, signing up for dinners about racism, I spoke about some of the things I went through sometimes too, mm-hmm. and I actually went through some of the same things that they describe, where people were disagreeing and people were not not really. I, I felt at least it's just my perception, but I felt that they weren't really trying to step into my shoes and, and try and understand. They wanted to be right, you know. That adds up. It's not as violent, perhaps, or it's not as like outwardly exclusionary, but it eats it eats you away. Mm-hmm. I didn't really enjoy those dinners, like towards the end, like I, I stopped going to them. Because I didn't see that there was much for me. I felt a little bit powerless, you know, in my situation. So I just like put my head down, got my PhD and then, and then I left very quickly. I think I think it's it's true that, you know, sometimes aggression or sometimes making people feel uncomfortable is um, maybe not not productive like it doesn't actually help people have those conversations but at the same time like you know the the, the, the status quo or like the, the ways that a lot of conversations like this the boardroom that the article mentions the, the the meeting rooms a lot of the time the precondition is that some people will feel more comfortable and it's, t- it's going to be typically like your your most um, well educated the person with the highest like position, you know, those are the people who feel the most comfortable saying whatever they want and feeling that everybody is going to cater to them. But what about all the other people who don't really feel like that they have that much power to say that or that much freedom to say that?
0: And I think, I think what you said about being uncomfortable, I, I don't think that always has to come from a place of aggression. You know, I've had many conversations on the show where I may not have been as comfortable with the topic as the other person. They might have been an expert in that field. But I do think... No matter, if, no matter how you go about having these conversations, there's going to be an uncomfortable feeling. Mm-hmm. And sitting in that uncomfortableness is the only way forward. You have to understand that my life and your life are very different. That's because of how we look. People have different opportunities because of their name, how they dress, how they look, how much money they make, who they're connected with. All these things are very, very, very prevalent in our world. Mm-hmm. And people sometimes just don't realize it because, well, it's not affecting me. It becomes so vital when we talk about humanity as a whole that we're bigger than just ourselves. I know it's very important to focus on yourself and it's like. I got to get this, I got to get a job to pay the bills, and I got to eat, and I got to take care of my body. Mm-hmm. We also built what we built by working together. Yeah. I say it all the time, we're never going to get true equality if one group tears down another. I think there's a good quote by Paulo uh, Freire, or I think that's how you say his name, mm-hmm. but he talks about basically being careful of the oppressed becoming the oppressor. Equality is about two groups moving forward together together when we talk about these stories, conversations need to be have uncomfortable conversations at that people need to be better.
1: Sometimes, I mean, sometimes, uh, what I see in, um, what is aggressive is also subjective, you know, like not everybody's going to agree, like what is aggressive. And, um,
0: yes, very true.
1: I've been in like scientific conferences where, People were like saying some some stuff about like the the, uh, injustices or the unfairness in even within like my own field and like the way that we do things and things that might be exclusionary or might constitute like bullying kind of behavior. You know, they were up on a podium, they were saying things and it resonated with me because I I felt what they were feeling. And I was like, yeah, cool. Mm -hmm. I'm sure to some other people in the room, though, uh, the more senior professors like to them, it probably was too aggressive. You know, but for me, it was it was the, it was the most hopeful thing I'd ever seen um, in, in 2017 at that conference, 2018 at that conference. Like for me, it was so inspiring. And it's it just, you know, sometimes it, th- different things might might sound different to different people.
0: I do agree with you. I think that's a very good point. I'm from the Midwest, and we're very nice people, <laughs> but if you go to New York, people in New York aren't that nice, but they think they're fine. You know? I'll bring Cardi B into it. Cardi B just released her WAP song. What she's talking about, male rappers have been talking about for generations, but now we have an issue because she's a female saying it. So, it is. It's like these different views and different ideas of what we find excess or what we find acceptable mm-hmm. really depends on your situation. And it is, it's, I think you could brought a good point. What one person feels is aggressive. Another may not. Yeah.
1: I also, I, I agree with you also that, you know, some, sometimes we, we probably should have a little bit of a longer term view of like, what is it that we should do with our time and like how, how we think about like, you know, what is the best solution to, to all of this? I was on another podcast. I had to appear as the expert on another one uh, they wanted to ask me, "Will humans go extinct? <laughs> <laughs> and if we go extinct, why would we go extinct?" So I gave them the different like things. You know, it can be pandemic, very relevant now. It could be natural disaster. It could be climate change. You know, causing those natural disasters. Um, it could also just be humans um, doing horrible things to each other. I think um, you know one one thing that I think a lot about is is that, for example, the threat of climate change and how it's like sort of using up all of our resources is a huge problem and it, it affects, it will affect everybody on the planet um, if we don't keep it under control right now. If if we're all going to solve it, I think a lot of the time, you know, borders and differences between different kinds of people all around the world, they kind of need to like drop that. Just <laughs> drop it and take care of like the big thing that will threaten us one day.
0: Or else we're turning into a Mad Max society. Yeah,
1: but people, people hold on to it. Again, it's, it's going back to that, you know, people believe really hard in the thing, in the systems that are in place, the governments, the black lines on maps, it doesn't make any sense to me. Like, I think all, like, we need to stop thinking like that and and really try and think across cultures and across nations, so that we can actually, like, solve some of the bigger issues, which will have no mercy, no matter what our political beliefs or our social Tendencies.
0: Uh Michael, thank you for taking the time to share your perspective on some of the strangest and most interesting news stories the world has to offer in a productive and meaningful conversation. Once again, if you would like to connect with Dr. Rivera and learn more about his work, you can do so by following him on Twitter at Rivera Michael and on Instagram at Dr. Michael Rivera. You can also support his show, the ARC and Anth Podcast, by following on Twitter and Instagram at Arc and Anth Pod. As always, those links will be included in the description of this episode and on our website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. Com. Once again, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. So as you mentioned, you, you're settled back into the roots of Hong Kong. What can listeners expect from the podcast moving forward for the next 150 episodes or so? Oh, wow. I mean, you've done 150 <laughs> episodes. Congratulations <laughs> on you. that.
1: Um, I am just going to keep interviewing um, interesting people who do interesting stuff, answer questions that you don't, you didn't even know that you want the answers to. I, I really hit every realm of society and, and history that you can think of. Yeah, like that's that's what we do on the podcast. And we do it through long term, uh, long form interviews as well. Very similar to this. In that way, you can actually really get a sense of who the person is, even behind the work. I think a lot of the time people don't really know, you know, why? Why care about this small little thing? It's it's great to hear like the personal journeys and sometimes even that is inspiring. So that's what I really enjoy doing on my show.
0: And as always, thank you to all my listeners for listening to another episode of Water Cooler Talk, the only such podcast on the internet hosted by myself and guest hosted today by Michael, where we take the strangest and most interesting real life news stories from around the world and well, just try and have a good old conversation about some of those ideas discussed in those bizarre news stories. Michael, we are now at my favorite part of the show where I hand the show off to you to close out the show with some final thoughts maybe a song. I don't know if you want to sing. Go ahead, sing. Tell a joke. No pressure. (laughs) Whatever you think is right to end this episode, the floor is yours. Wow.
1: Well, well, what pressure? Uh, Filipinos are very well known for like being good singers, but I am not one of them. So I won't do that. (laughs) You don't have to sing. You don't have to sing. Um, I actually, I think that I would love to say that it's a very confusing time right now. You know, 2020 is the, is a year. And (laughs) The thing that I would love to encourage uh, anybody listening, this is what I do. And this is like how I grew up. When I was like 11, I got my first, you know, hand-me-down computer from my mom. She didn't want to use her big, chunky computer anymore. That was the first time I had the internet. The way that I learn and the way that I like make sense of all this confusing stuff to make sense of like, you know, what exactly is coronavirus and why is it so effective at like affecting humans Um, questions about racism, why is it that we have religion, you know, all these big questions, there are always people out there who are huge nerds, like me, and they, they, they dissect all of this stuff. And there's a lot of good work being done to try and like, write stuff that is accessible, that is interesting. That would be a good read um, written just like, you know, like a detective novel, trying to get to the facts and present it in a compelling way. So if you're ever confused, like the Internet is 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 <laughs> is a lot of uh, confusion sometimes and a lot of like rage. But, you know, <laughs> there are answers to everything. It anno- It annoys my boyfriend a lot when I tell him or my mom you know, they have questions and sometimes they're just asking a rhetorical question, you know, oh wow, like, why is why does think why do things have to be that way? And then I'm I just step in and I'm like, I just tell them a a six million year long story. (laughs) Um, Just like that. And it annoys them. But you know, there there are answers that uh, to questions and check check those out you know always try and find experts there's experts on everything out there rely on experts and believe them
0: well i i very much appreciate the conversation because of the internet we're having this conversation and we connected and that's a wonderful thing so thank you uh listeners until next time peace this is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world and while many of these stories may seem fake they're absolutely not because they're real What an episode, what a guest, what a time. Thank you once again to Michael for calling into the studio from Hong Kong to talk about those bizarre news stories. As always, make sure to support his podcast, The Ark and Anth Podcast, by following the links in the description of this episode, or by going to our website www.watercoolertalkpod.com. Also make sure to support Michael's charity of choice for today's episode, the TAIBU Community Health Center in Ontario. All it takes is $5, the price of a coffee to help make a difference. Helping out can even be as easy as telling a friend about a new cause around the water cooler, wherever those dang water coolers may appear. But anyways, to the corrections! In the first story discussing New Zealand's wizard and wizard heir apparent Michael mentioned the first art by Homo sapiens being around 50,000 years ago. I was able to discover a rather recent discovery by scientists that found what they believe to be art by Homo sapiens in South Africa to be from around 70,000 years ago. I'll double check with Michael and provide an update, if needed, on that fact. For the Hookman story, I was I, I was close to the fabled retelling. Uh legend says a couple is macking out hard in a parked car listening to the radio. Over the radio they hear of a serial killer escaping a nearby mental institute. Bada bing bada boom, you add in your own flavor to make it scary. And the story ends with a hook embedded or hanging from the side of the car with the couple murdered. Now that's how it was kind of heard here in Minnesota. If you've heard the story being told a different way, please email us watercoolertalkpod at gmail.com. As for the discovery of fire, Michael mentioned the remains of charcoal for the use of fire first found 200,000 to 500,000 years ago. This would line up with the beginning of the evolution of homo sapiens and fire. But research from the University of Toronto and Hebrew University identified the earliest known evidence of microscopic traces of wood ash dated 1 million years ago in South Africa. If you're needing to get married and need to find something old, well, South Africa might have it for you. And to add on to Michael's point about better diets helping enlarge our brains, there's very good research for further reading by Manuel, Dominguez, or on how eating cooked meat helped us become the humans we are today and helped evolve our large human brains as Michael discusses in the episode. And then we do have an update to the corrections from Michael uh, asking about those questions. He says, In my class, we go with the strongest evidence when we make general statements. The traces of fire dating to very long ago are difficult to identify because we're really just finding small traces of evidence we can test chemically. It is best to stick with what we know for sure, something is charcoal, signs of burning fuel, that would be 200,000 to 500,000 years ago, like said on the episode. We only have a range as well, and no definite time because of our chemical analysis are subject to error. But that is a direct update from Michael himself. Thank you for that, Michael. In the second story discussing racial conversations over dinner, that's not your family's Thanksgiving. I very whitely called Cardi B's new song WAP. It is instead called WAP. Yeah, you got to get it right. I don't want to, you know Cardi B in the DMs being mad that I uh, mispronounced the song. But <laughs> all right, Water Coolians, that's another Corrections Corner. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to another episode of Water Cooler Talk. Once again, thank you to Michael for calling into the studio from Hong Kong and talking about some of the strangest, most weird news stories the world has to offer. But anyways, that's your corrections, that's your episode. So wop, wop, your right out of here. Oh goodness, uh, just turn off the This mic. is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not, because they're real. <laughs>